This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. I saw I saw the clip that you all have posted on your website about Princeton, but most people don't know the impact or the growing impact of the ministry that you have. Christian Union started, my understanding is, in 2002. Uh, I think Princeton was the first campus in which it had uh, a local right. chapter, is that correct? And and my understanding is is that you started, it was a mega church, it was a three students to start off with, and, <laughs> and, then, and then you went from there. So uh, tell us uh, kind of the story of, of the growth of the impact of the ministry on campus. Yeah, well, um, due, to, due to the long years of, of prayer and fasting and planning and direct ministry from Matt and, and many of the guys that were here on campus before me, it, it has grown and, and it's grown to become, uh, you may have seen it in that video, uh, the largest student organization here at Princeton right now, um, where, um, and I would say broadly, it, it is it has served alongside a pretty robust uh, Christian community that is um, growing in influence. One out of every, I would say, about eight students, uh, one out of every, uh, let's see if I'm getting that right, one out of every, yeah, one out of every eight or nine students are involved in some sort of evangelical ministry right now. Uh, I would say here at uh, our particular ministry that uh, we are approaching probably actually now in excess of 400 students as part of our ministry. So that's um, the students that are getting weekly biblical impartation and, and discipleship. And, and that's leadership. out of 5,200 undergraduates around about at Princeton. Is that right? That's that's right. That's right. So, yeah, we uh, we desire to keep moving, and by God's grace, that our influence will continue to grow to where not just having students in our ministry, um, uh, that's great that we have more and more students in our ministry, but really leveraging them and establishing them uh, to be a beachhead for further engagement on the campus. So, um, so that and your your hope is that in by what it twenty. Was it 2020 or 2025? I don't remember. 20%. That number would double, basically, is what you're hoping for. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we think it'll ha- be able to happen sooner than that at Princeton. We're hoping for the whole Ivy League to see 20% of the student body involved in Christian activity, either local churches and or Christian ministries on campus, um, yeah. all this by 2020. And Princeton's ahead of the curve. We think, by God's grace, we'll see this in a couple of years. Uh, because we started later on some of the other campuses, and at, at Brown, we haven't started there yet. We'll be starting next year. Then it'll be a little bit more work to see if that can happen in that time frame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some campuses are more conducive to this than others. That's for sure. Um, uh, the, so, uh, and, and let's talk a little bit about some of the cooperation that you all engage in, because it's not just Christian Union on campus. You all pair up with other. Uh, yep organizations that some of which have been there for a while, some of which are particular to Princeton. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's a, uh, I just actually recently today, uh, a couple hours ago, just came back from a, a weekly uh, prayer and planning meeting that I have with four, uh, with the directors of four other ministries here on campus. Um, I've sat, and I really believe that to be a, a real 
um, high point of Christian Union's emphasis is that we do co-labor alongside other brothers and sisters. We have a real wide tent. Um, and so, yeah, there are other ministries that have been here long before us, some that have, um, some not as not as long, but yeah, we, we desire to partner with all of them to various degrees. We pray and fast with them um, throughout the semester, throughout the year, various times. Our student leaders are overlapping in an ever-increasing way. And so there's a great amount of growing, I would say as well, collegiality and partnership in the gospel. Some of even our engagement has been an overlap amongst uh, with some of the other ministries. Even that dinner uh, that you went to, Daryl, uh, Dr. Bob, um, would have uh, would have included uh, a few different students and staff from different ministries. That's right. Yeah, and that's actually one of the things that's always made it attractive for me to come to Princeton is the recognition that these ministries are cooperating with one another, and so uh, and so there you don't you don't have the sense of competition. What you get is a sense of there really is a sense of mission that says if we're going to accomplish what we're seeking to do, we've got to work together to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, let me let me shift. No, we, go ahead, go ahead, Matt. I just want to say we've also been blessed by having a good relationship with uh, the Catholics on campus. Yeah. You know, our theology and approach is Protestant. However, um, we do believe uh, in partnering with um, all sorts of um, other ministries with with similar hearts and similar goals. And so, thankful uh, um, we're thankful to Professor Robert George, who's a Catholic. I'm Christian on the Princeton campus, um, who's a professor who's very outspoken on a number of important issues, and it's it's great to partner with him as well. Yeah, uh, all that's helpful. Tim, you're going to chime in? Nope, nothing to add there. I would just second and amen that. Yeah. Um, well, let's shift now to some of the more intellectual challenges that students face. And with this, what well, I kind of want to have in the backdrop uh, in your thinking as you answer. Uh, what what advice would you give yeah. to youth leaders and that kind of thing who are preparing students to come to a university campus at the level of the intellectual challenges that they face? Uh, I don't want to turn this into a gripe session, although it could risk going there. Uh, but that is, um, you know, what is it that this, that you find the students are not prepared to face? That they could be better prepared to face when they arrive on campus, and, mm-hmm. and what is it that these leaders need to be aware of as they're preparing their students for campus in the, in the intellectual environment that many of their their churchgoers are going to walk into. They come to university. You know, the um, the first thing I would want to mention is actually the, a non-intellectual part of this, and that yeah. is, I think it's something that everybody knows, but I don't think is talked about enough, and that is. The most important thing for them to do is connect socially, relationally with other Christians when they arise, arrive, and that being a local church and mm-hmm. a Christian ministry. And, uh, and that even means if you um, come a few months early, if you're you know, looking at the campus, connecting then uh, with people, with students and others, because I think we really don't fully appreciate how much of our knowledge is so socially constructive. And a person really solid on a lot of good issues. But if you walk into a context and your only friends live just a dramatically different lifestyle, it has a powerful impact negatively on your intellectual views and your intellectual thoughts. And that's not really understood. And so, But if a person connects socially from the very beginning and has a network of good Christian friends, then there's time and context to wrestle with all the intellectual issues. Because if they don't have that, then just, just forget it. Um, So that, I think Tim and I both would say, absolutely is so incredibly important above all else. Uh, But then comes the intellectual, which is important. And and Tim, maybe you can comment on that. 
Yeah. Um, so, and, and Dr. Bach, really remembering the emphasis you said is what advice we might be able to give to, to pastors and even parents that are preparing their students. Uh, I would say, with agreement with everything that Matt said, um, I would say the one thing that I would love for uh, high school pastors and families to be able to do is, first of all, um, have a vision uh, for their students and for their children for the next season of life and what um, the, what all will be required in order to flourish and grow in the Christian faith. And then um, I would say, if I could, uh, without ranting in any sense, uh, just exhale a little bit, uh, relax, and, and don't be afraid to uh, articulate what's there and what's not there. One of the things that I find when students come on campus is um, sometimes the ones that really get uh, stunned by some of the opposition that might be here intellectually, uh, it's because they've never ever heard certain arguments. Uh, but when we hear students bring them to us, we just think, oh, I mean, yeah, it's, that's, that's not a big deal. But students are hearing these things for the very first time, and so they're rattled. Um, and so I, I wish what I would want pastors to do, parents to do, is to, in a sense, be honest with some of the questions that are out there. Non-Christians, uh, whether in sort of professional spheres or even at a lay level, ask some really, really, really good questions. Um, it's just sometimes they, they take the wrong tack and come to wrong conclusions, but they're really asking some good questions. And so I wish that uh, our pastors and our and our parents would be preparing our students better um, just by introducing some of these questions and creating categories that, hey, you can ask these questions and not abandon or not have your faith rattled. There are good answers for them. There are good resources to arrive at those answers. Um, and those can be found as you enter into this next level. I've met with prospective students' families here. And when I tell them about the broader sort of religious and, and Christian landscape here at Princeton, they're kind of shocked. Um, because they thought it was sort of, you know, the fallow ground where um, no Christian can be found in any corner of the university. Uh, and surely there's opposition here, and it's not entirely friendly to the Christian landscape, but um, there is healthy sort of engagement and community, as Matt was saying there. Um, and there, and there, and we're wrestling through lots of these things, and there's no need to sort of uh, fear monger or, or cast sort of... Um, this dark blanket over this context of these strategic influential universities. I really think if parents and pastors did a good job of really being honest with the challenges that are out there and then providing resources to respond to them, uh, it would set up students so much better as they enter into this really, really pivotal time of life. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to continue on the two parts of your answer because I think they're both extremely important. The first is, you know, getting connected very early on. I know that one thing, I saw this at Columbia, I saw the planning for this at Columbia when I was there last spring, uh, and I know it's done on several campuses as well. You all give a lot of energy to welcoming students when they arrive. Uh, and and uh, and and making sure that they know that you're there, that they're you're available for them, et cetera. I, I think that's one of the most important strategic things you all do on on your campus uh, because because it does give a place. Uh, you know, when a when a when a student is arriving, you know, it's for many of them their whole world is changing all at once. Right. And some of them have never been very far away from home at any point. They may not have gone to a summer camp. or any, This might be their first extended way uh, time away from home. And so to have uh, friends and support uh, there for them is, is strategically important. And I know even when I was in college, I used to tell 
kids when I was engaged in, in ministry on campuses. I used to teach a Bible study at a fraternity house at SMU. Uh, I used to say the most important thing you can do is to make sure that you land in a ministry that's going to be supportive of you as you go through college from the very moment you hit the campus. So that's I, – I, I can't agree with you more about how important that is. And then yeah. the second half of what you're saying that I think is important is um, introducing uh, students to the issues and the questions they're going to face and the way they're going to face them before they get uh, kind of into the frying pan, if I can say it that way, um, uh, so that it doesn't catch them by surprise. Because some students feel a sense when that happens to them of being betrayed. Uh, that yeah. that what has happened? Why didn't I hear about this at my church? Why didn't you – you know, I can see the force of that question. Why didn't we talk about this when I was when I was in high school? You know, that kind of thing. And, right. and that sense of betrayal can produce an emotional reaction to the church that, that is the first step towards walking away. Right. right. And you know, what's interesting is you have you – know, you, when you have a local church context you, and the youth group, you have students of a wide variety and range of intellectual interest. And um, there are a, a segment of those who go to very highly academic universities where we minister. And unfortunately, a lot of times, you know, very few churches are large enough to kind of provide something for each of the different students in terms of where they are and what they need. And so it's just difficult for um, a church to um, be able to provide that for the different um, academic interests of the different um, students. And so this is where parents are so key, and they know their um, kids are very um, active, academically oriented, then it's really incumbent upon them to provide them with the questions and the challenges in a deep way and not being threatened by it because there are answers to every challenge that's brought up. And um, Daryl, you know from your years of scholarship, it's just, you know, the, the latest theory comes out and then you uh, address it and look at it and realize get to the bottom of it and then it's on to the next thing because their answers are all there, but it just takes time to kind of work through them. That's right. And, and some of what gets hyped as new is actually quite old. And, oh, yeah. uh, and you know, it's just been repackaged. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about, well, we're, we're dealing with uh, this book that's come out recently about Jesus called Zealot, which is really, you know, hit gone viral in certain contexts in terms of the way it's been responded to. And when I read that book, I look at it and I go, this, yeah. is, this is stuff that I saw in the 1990s. This is stuff that was written about in the 1960s. There isn't really anything new here. The new twist is, is that now there's someone with a Muslim background writing about it. But they, right. even that's not surprising because any time a book is produced by a skeptical Christian in the United States, one of the first places it lands is in the Middle East. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I think we have to realize um, uh, again that the uh, getting that getting the other half of the story out or the rest of the story out, what the culture is not uh, pumping out towards people, is an important part of the equation and helping people know where those resources are. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app 
or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. Um, well, let me let me let me shift gears one more time and ask. Now we've we've talked in generalities for the most part. If I were to ask you for three or four key specific intellectual challenges um, and or social challenges, uh, what will we be looking at at Princeton? Yeah, the key the key social challenge uh, in my mind would be. Uh, yeah, the the social elitism, but I do think also the the thornier question of the of the hookup culture and um, the sexual licentiousness that is pervasive on campus. I think I think it is so destructive to students, male, female. It's so dehumanizing um, that I do think that is the key social uh, that's the key social issue. But yeah, the second one is um, within the religion department. Some of the stuff that you've interacted with, Dr. Bach, with our students. Um, I think that's another uh, intellectual hurdle. Um, Princeton doesn't have a large atheist population. There's a small crew. They're loud, but they're small. Um, the issue is much more on um, parsing uh, the value of Scripture and then the portrait of Christ that it presents. So I would say um, the engagement of the sexual ethic and then the engagement of the issues of the historical Jesus, the resurrection, are, are very, very um, front and center, and therefore are front and center as far as our approach to engaging the campus this year. Now let's talk a little bit about something that I have spent a lot of time interacting with your campus about in detail. In fact, it's the reason why I go up there periodically, and that is the famous, what's been nicknamed, Faith Buster course. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, what, some people have no idea what that is, so let's start there. Uh, what, what, what does it mean to walk into a Faith Buster course, and what are we talking about? Yeah, so the Faith Buster... Go ahead. Before the current professor... You know, this, uh, this course at Princeton has a long history, and even before the current professor, the previous professor who taught it was known for uh, teaching a course on New Testament origins, but in, at least in my view, instead of presenting a balanced mm-hmm. view of, of the scholarship on the issue, would present one side, would never deceive or uh, would never lie outright, but by the way it would be presented would leave the students, in my view, intentionally with a very wrong perception of scholarship on the subject, which was really disappointing and really less than what Princeton should be and is in most other areas. Now, in the last uh, few years, as you know, it's been taken over by another professor, and there are similar problems, and and Tim, you can address. Yeah. Yeah, so so the Faith Busters class is actually going to be sort of the locus of one aspect of our engagement this year. it's, it's actually a perfect case study when I talked before about um, there's a need here to be honest about certain things related to scriptures and just sort of early interpretations of who Jesus was and that it's, you know, there was some variegation about it. And yet the conclusions that are arrived at in this Faith Busters course um, need not be logical outcomes. Uh, there's a lot of non sequitur there. And so... Um, it's oftentimes the disagreements that we find between biblical scholars and systematic theologians is the kind of challenges that you're finding in this Faith Busters course. The problem is students heading into uh, this course have never heard any of these uh, sort of nuances to canon or discussions of the Gnostic Gospels, um, the Gnostic representation of Jesus versus the synoptics, the synoptic problem. What is a synoptic problem? Um, any of these things, these are all raised, as it were, for the first time for many students, um, not necessarily for our faculty at all, but for the students, the first time they're hearing about there's a problem in the synoptic gospels. They're, they're giving a different 
representation of Jesus than John would. Uh, John was influenced by the, the Gnostics and the Gospel of Thomas, the dating, all of these sorts of things. Um, this is exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about, where students hear this from the first time. They're intimidated because they hear from it. They hear it from uh, a top-notch distinguished scholar who has received this honorary degree and that honorary degree. Uh, so they're very intimidated. They almost don't stand a chance. Uh, so Faith Busters is a course that we're very much engaging. And I'm happy to report that um, our, our initial levels of engagement last year, which I really believe are just preliminary efforts, just really fact-finding, um, just gathering something at a grassroots level that we're giving more energy and resourcing to this year. But even last year's efforts resulted in uh, I think significant changes and, and um, modifications where that course, that Faith Busters course, uh, is now seeing some changes in its curriculum. Uh, mm. Where um, before I would say, like Matt was attesting to, that the curriculum, the reading, the bibliography was very, very, I would say, skewed and asymmetrical. Um, it's actually finding much more balance where right now you're starting to find resources like C.E. Hill. You're starting to find resources like uh, N.T. Wright's engagement with John Dominic Crossan. Things that you wouldn't have found uh, five, three, two, even a year ago are now starting to enter into the course syllabi for many of these students. Um, and so we're engaging in ongoing conversation with that professor, engaging in this particular area, um, so that now what we're actually hearing is some of the other campus ministers who used to tell their students, do not take that class, uh, do whatever you can to avoid it, are actually now telling their students, go take that class because you're going to be trained and equipped and resourced to be able to engage and interact with that professor at a level that's going to actually build your faith, not break it. That's uh, that's interesting to hear, and that is an interesting development. You know, as, <laughs> as surprising as that sounds, it really is nothing but a mirror of what goes on culturally. If you, mm -hmm. look, at, if you look at what goes on television that talks about Christianity yeah. or whatever, you see the mm -hmm. exact same thing. Fact, that's where it's coming from, and right. so uh, and so it isn't like this material is inaccessible. It isn't like you have to go to university to find out what these arguments are. They're actually on your television. They're on the History Channel or they're yeah. a CNN special or whatever. When they dive into these areas at Christmas and Easter on a regular basis, you know, you're getting the presentation of this stuff, and what you're getting it. What you're getting in the public square oftentimes is very much a reflection of kind of where the Faith Busters course started, which is you're getting one side of the argument presented uh, yep. very in a very organized, crisp, aesthetically pleasing and attractive way uh, right. that then says and that and it uses the the quote more often than not many scholars argue or most scholars argue so who's going to argue with the scholarship on this that kind yeah. of thing and you're off and running and again the se the secret is is that people don't know there's a whole nother half of this debate that they're not even being exposed to right I, like you mentioned you know a lot of these arguments are the same ones that were around decades ago um, but most people don't know it and don't know that they've uh, some of these um, Arguments haven't even been refuted, and, and most scholars won't even look at this anymore, even though there might have arised some new sort of arguments against the scriptures. But um, that they don't know. They're not exposed to it. And if, um, if it weren't for Tim and his team there to show them the other side and have you come up and, and speak on it and show them the resources, they wouldn't have much of a chance. 
Yeah, well, it's a it's an extremely important conversation, and it's an important uh, element to the equation. Uh, we've talked about sexuality. We've talked about specific uh, biblical issues. Let me bring up a couple of others that I know hit our campus. Although it sounds like that one of them is not that big uh, on Princeton's campus, but it might be big in other spots on other key campuses. The whole new atheism uh, emphasis and thrust, which is not so much. It, it, that's no, not so much a battle over the nature of the Bible, although sometimes it goes there. It's a more philosophical and worldview battle, it seems to me. Um, uh, is that is that big on campus, Tim? Um, I would say, as I said before, it's it's a small, um, probably loud crew, but a small crew. Um, it's the reason why it's not probably as big is because pluralism is so big at Princeton, um, and a hard atheism seems just as um, unwelcome as a hard exclusivity of Christ view. Hmm. Um, and so you often don't don't find the you know the Richard Dawkins or the Sam Harris or the Daniel Dennett um, kind of book circulating. Um, that's almost as extreme as really a, a high uh, orthodox view of, of Christianity would be. What I would say is, however. Um, this is one of those cases where being real honest with questions be, uh, would be very, very helpful and has been very, very helpful with students. Um, I would say that if there is an atheist population on campus, it probably resides, um, this may not be uh, surprising at all, resides within the science department, particularly the physics department. Um, and if they do ever have a biblical attack, it's ger generally been located with Genesis 1 and, and like issues. Um, and so what we've found is just, again, there's questions about Genesis 1. There's also different readings of Genesis 1 that they've never heard. That's right. Uh, what is a framework view? Um, and, and so when they encounter things like that, they're realizing that, my goodness, what, what the biblical author is talking about there is is very perhaps very far from our 20th and 21st century uh, kind of debates that we're having, and it really just diffuses and defangs um, their opposition. And so uh, last year, even having some of these just across-the-table conversations on things like Genesis 1, we found um, those who have been in sort of these atheist or even hard agnostic sort of uh, camps have really softened, and some have even come to faith. One of the things I was going to say before is, uh, out of the, the number of students we have in our ministry approaching 400 right now, uh, one one-sixth of the students in our ministries right now came to Princeton as a non-Christian. Um, mm. And so if you think about it, uh, that's, that's, that's quite a, by God's grace, that's, that's a quite a, um, an attestation of just how even minds are being changed from those who are, whether they were apathetic or antagonistic, many of whom were antagonistic, are now just finding that Christian belief isn't as high a jump as they initially, originally thought it was going to be because we're engaging some of these, what they thought were going to be just um, non-negotiables. They were never going to be able to breach this. They're never going to be able to breach Genesis 1 versus modern science. Different readings and different handling of those questions are actually proving um, the opposite to be true. That's interesting. You know, one of the things that I find interesting about pluralism when it when it exists is is that one of the more difficult things about it is is that it kind of becomes a well, you believe that, and if it works for you, that's great. Uh, but I believe something else, and, mm -hmm. and, and it almost produces a kind of subtle withdrawal from engagement if you're not careful. Um, mm -hmm. And so, being able to engage that mindset that says everyone has a right to the table and to be at the table for the conversation, but then knowing how to do your advocacy once you yeah. get to the table, that's an interesting combination uh, of skills to teach somebody. And I, I take it that's part of what you're after in your leadership development part of what you do. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, uh, 
we've i mean i'm sitting here going our hour is just about up and i'm sitting here going it's amazing i mean uh there are a whole series of things that i'd love to come back and and talk with you about and i suspect uh, i may impose upon you all again sometime in the future to to uh to talk with us about uh, about some stuff in more detail uh let me ask you one final question because i i'm coming back to the sexual environment and and the social pressures one of the things that i'm hearing that's interesting to hear from you is that if i ask that question on a lot of campuses what i often get in terms of the response of social pressure and sexuality is the whole if i can say it uh uh uh, debate over uh, same-sex marriage and those kinds of issues. But what I'm hearing from you, at least what I think I'm hearing from you is, is that the level of personal ethics with regard to sexuality is almost overwhelming that particular discussion, which is more a, uh, can be more of a, a political debate or a social debate as opposed to, to personalize. I mean, it can sometimes move into that, but am I hearing that right, that the personal challenge of of your overall approach to sexuality is in some ways a more profound issue on the campus for students? Yeah, it, it really is. It um, You know, the same-sex attraction issue, of course, affects a lot of students, but it's, it's minor compared to heterosexual attraction and all the sexual practices that happen on campus, um, you know, premarital sex. And so far more of our students deal with that. And so the whole hookup culture, as they call it, which is just a culture of pretty much people sleeping with everybody all the time, is just overwhelms that. So we definitely have to deal with the, um, the um, homosexual issue, but it's just not nearly as big as, as um, the hookup yeah. culture. Yeah, underneath it, Dr. Bach, I think you nailed it, is I think the real challenge is just autonomy. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the right to just say, I can live uh, with whoever I want, however I want, however often I want, uh, and that's the real challenge. It's it's not necessarily this manifestation of it, that manifestation. The root problem is the root problem is autonomy. One of the and I'll and I'll just end with this. One of the the language that arose last year as we were going through a study called Sex and Spirituality. Um, what we started to ask Princeton students were, particularly those that are in engineering and some of a quantitative mindset. We said, hey, there is. Would you agree a certain um, logic and law? Uh, to the universe as it relates to engineering. You would never think of just originating your own laws of engineering. What you're trying to do is observe, interpret, and then apply uh, the laws that are in place in order to be fruitful at your studies here and then in life in the future. Well, similarly, there is a sort of relational physics um, and, and we ought to observe what's there, interpret it, and see if we can understand, apply, and embrace that. Um, but some reason there is a disconnect that happens there where students will say yes, there is something that we must answer to in the former in order to do engineering or or uh, economics or physics well. But as it relates to relational engineering or relational physics or relational economics, we ha we somehow have the right to uh, develop our own um, universal laws. And they're realizing that disconnect. And some actually just caved under the pressure of that and actually became Christians through that course last year. So um, that is something that we hope to be able to continue and expand upon is just examining that disconnect. It feels arbitrary, and I think students are becoming increasingly aware of it. I think that's a great articulation of a principle that I like to talk about, and that is that uh, sometimes the church thinks that because uh, it's in the Bible, it's true, uh, but maybe because it's yeah. true, it's in the Bible. And those are not the same thing. 
And so when you work on explaining why it's true, which is why it's landed in the Bible, rather than saying it's in the Bible and therefore it's true, you actually give depth to what's going on. And, right. and, and in and out of that depth, there becomes a kind of uh, a reflective process and thinking that goes on that a person who isn't connected to any loyalty to the Bible can still wrestle with and hopefully appreciate. Right. Well, listen, I, again, thank you all for taking the time to meet with us. I'm sure this is the first of several that we'll be doing with campuses uh, in the Ivy League. And Tim, I really do thank you for taking the time to introduce Princeton to us. Matt, Absolutely. Christian Union, uh, it's a great ministry. Uh, we continue to pray for what you all do up there. And we, our hope is, is that uh, by uh, giving some time to talk about some of these issues, we've helped some people in the church or parents think through uh, where their kids are, particularly their teenage kids who are thinking about headed to university. So thank you all very much. Great. Thank you so much. Blessings to you. And we appreciate you joining us on The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.